So welcome everyone to Jerisha's LL program. Uh, we are thrilled to have you all here this afternoon. Uh, my name is Michael Frada. I'm the assistant program for Jerisha. I am thrilled to be able to welcome you all here. Uh, we have a number of really phenomenal courses being taught during LL. Uh, this course uh, is the third session of the Emotions of Repentance, Rev Soloveitchik, Rev Cook, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe with Rabbi Dr. Yosef Bronstein. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Bronstein has smicha from Ritz as well as a PhD in Talmudic studies from the Revel School, uh, both at YU. Uh, he currently teaches Jewish philosophy and halacha at Michal Moser Yerushalayim, as well as online for YU's Breuer College. Uh, he has two books that are God willing, forthcoming, uh, engaging the essence, the philosophy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and Rishimot Sherim Shel Moran Harav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik on the Sechat Kiddushin, a uh, collection of uh, notes and, and lessons from various Shirim given by Rev Soloveitchik on Masachat Kiddushin in the Bafli. Uh, this particular course, uh, The Emotions of Repentance, gives us an opportunity to focus on the ways in which Jewish literature explores the emotions that accompany the process of tshuva alongside the technical aspects of that. So we will, we, the, the goal of the entire series is to be focusing on tracing that uh, set of emotions and the way that they're discussed from medieval authorities through uh, various 20th century thinkers, including a focus on Rev Soloveitchik, of Cook and the Lubavitcher Rebbe in order to highlight both the continuities and the ruptures uh, between those medieval and the modern perspectives, as well as to give us a bit of a chance to explore the uh, particular ways in which those three modern thinkers approach the topic and, and will hopefully give us a taste for, for their thinking and their writing more broadly. Uh, I am going to post a copy of this afternoon's source sheet in the chat, uh, which I would encourage you to all pull up and, and be able to look at while we are going through this class. So Rabbi Bronstein, whenever, whenever you're ready. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Rabbi Silber, and thank you everybody at Trisha for, um, for giving me this opportunity. And thank you to everybody, who's, everybody who's, who came and is coming to, to learn Torah together. Um, so this week I'm particularly excited about because Rav Cook, for me, is one of the uh, central figures of, of my own Jewish philosophy. Um, I got interested in Jewish philosophy first through uh, the writings of Rav Cook. Um, his, his writings sort of overtook me. And it's really a treat to be able to share words from Rav Cook about tshuva, especially since his writings on tshuva in the book Oruta Tshuva, The Lights of Tshuva, has made such a seminal impact on, on my life and the lives of many people in the religious Zionist community in Israel and beyond. Um, in past classes, in past sessions, I, I, didn't, I didn't share a screen. I, I assume people have the source sheets in front of them. I think I'm gonna share a screen just because I wanna be able to follow some of the things, some of the sources line by line. So I'm gonna share a screen. Um, and here is the, the source sheet. So you have, hopefully, hopefully you shall be able to see it. And I can still see people if they, um, as, as long as they want. So, a little bit, first a little bit of background about Rav Kook. Um, Rav Kook was born in 1865, in 1935. So his years are a little bit before Rabbi Zalvijek's. 
Um, similar to Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rav Kook was a child prodigy. Um, many of the great Jewish thinkers were known as child prodigies from a young age. Um, many of them, it's, 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 it's apocryphal, it's, it's, uh, it's mythical, it's mythological. For Rav Kook, it was the real deal. We have we have independent testimony from young friend, friends of his when he was five, and he was six, and he was seven. He was a real true child prodigy. Um, eventually, he made his way through Yeshiva's Velashen, which was the main Yeshiva at the time, by age 18, already engaged to a Rosh Yeshiva's daughter. That's what happened to people back in the good old days. Um, he made Aliyah in 1904. He became chief rabbi of Yafo, Jaffa, and the surrounding settlements, which was an interesting job. And eventually, after World War I, when the, when the British took over, the, the, when they took over Israel they took, and they created the British Mandate of Palestine, he was appointed to be the chief rabbi, the first chief rabbi of the British Mandate of Palestine, and he served in that capacity until the rest of his life um, when he died in Yerushalayim in 1935. Um, Rav Kook is mainly known as a Zionist. He is mainly known as the founding father, so to speak, of the religious Zionist community in Israel. He's known as being very passionate about the need for Jews to once again make Aliyah, return to Israel en masse, create a nation, state there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, for anybody who actually reads Rav Cook's writings and sides, they will see that Rav Cook's main contribution to Jewish thought, I mean, this is a, a very general statement, but this is coming partially from my own, my own research, coming partially from the writings of, uh, of, of, of Dr. Mursky, Dr. Yitzhak Mursky, who's, who's written several amazing books about the thought of Rav Cook. Rav Cook's main self-identity and main contribution to Jewish thought was bringing Kabbalah, bringing Jewish mysticism, bringing, bringing spirituality to the fore, bringing it to a popular level and creating a whole worldview based on the secrets of Kabbalah, the secrets of Jewish mysticism. In the past, Jewish mysticism was more or less studied by an elite few. Over the course of generations, there were all sorts of barriers, all sorts of restrictions. As, as, uh, as, as progressive as rabbis were about Jewish education, and the Jews had their earliest public school education system set up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they were very reticent to spread what they consider the secrets of the Torah to be. For whatever reason, Rav Kook, we're not going to get to get into today, in the 20th century felt that the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel meant that the spirituality, the aura, the secrets of the Torah, the mysticism, had to be their front and center for the Jewish people in order for them to know what to do when they were returning into the land of Israel. And Rav Kook didn't just teach these things, he lived them, he practiced them. He was a real, live, deep spiritual personality. Now I think of him as some people are like child prodigies in terms of music. They, you know, they just sit at the piano at age four and five and they could pick up things and play things with the, with the upbeat tone. They have a high aptitude for music. And some people have just have a high aptitude for math. Again, age two, three, four, five, he could solve math problems intuitively. Rav Kook, based on his own writings from a very young age, had a high aptitude for spirituality. He felt God's presence palpably from a young age, and then never left him in a way that, that, that doesn't exist for the average person. And he felt that he had to take those feelings and the intellectual background of Jewish mysticism, which allows you to feel those things in a more sophisticated way, and express it to the people. Just to get a certain sense, well, this is going to be very important to understand Rav Kook's approach to tshuva, just to get a certain sense of who Rav Kook was as a person, we're going to look at, we're going to look at one and a half sources. Um, the following source is not from Rav Kook's published writings. Rav Kook kept a spiritual diary in the sense that he kept a notebook in his pocket, and whenever he would get an inspiration, 
So take the notebook out and write, write a paragraph down this. Um, the paragraphs have nothing to do with each other. It's just a paragraph, it's a paragraph, it's a paragraph. And Rav Kook is the chief rabbi. He was dealing with the British officials, dealing with the Muslim officials, dealing with internal politics in the Jewish community. In between these meetings, he would get a flash of inspiration. He would write something down in his notebook and continue, continue on his way. Rav Kook never meant for these notebooks to be published. Um, by all accounts, a lot of them are in first person. He gave them over to his family, to his students. They're under lock and key for 50 years, five zero years after he passed away in 1935. Uh, there was some scandal, which we're not going to get into now, but at the end of the day, they were published in the late 1980s, and now they're free online. So it's, it's on the one hand, it's like a little bit of an intrusion of the Cook's privacy to be reading these things. On the other hand, they're free on the internet. So it's hard not to read these things if we're interested in getting a sense of who Ruff Cook was. So this is Ruff Cook's self-description that he wrote in his own diaries, which we have no, which he had no expectation that anybody else would ever be reading. So let, 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 let's read it in English, because the Hebrew is extremely flowery. Who can know me? Now, if you follow where the cursor is. Who can know me? Who knows the fervor of my heart, which burns in truth with the fire of the, the supernal love of God? My spirit expires for you. My heart and my flesh sing to the living God. That's a possible. Who can realize I, I am unable to take interest in any limited matter because of my great yearning for the eternal delight of the infinite expanses that I am sick with love? And not only do others not know me, but I myself do not know myself. Imagine writing that in your own diary. Rav Cook lived with religious spiritual experience. And he wasn't just a mystic living on a hilltop. He was a politician. He knew all of the Talmud. He was a halachic decisor. He had shalos and shivos. He knew the entire breadth of Jewish mysticism, the text of it, and Jewish philosophy basically on his fingertips. And you put that together with somebody who's involved in worldly affairs, somebody who is sophisticated, somebody who has his experiences, you get an extremely innovative Jewish philosophy. The next, the, the, the next source is also first-person passage, before we get to the sources about Shuva, a first-person passage from Rav Kok about what he's trying to accomplish in his own writings. Um, again, if you want to follow along in the Hebrew, feel free to, but, uh, but, but, but we're, we're going to read parts of the English. Rav Kook writes as follows in his own diary. It is not for nothing that the God of all spirits has planted within me the constant desire for everything concealed, for everything eminent and exalted. He has a desire to study a desire for spiritual experiences. So for a second. And not, and not for nothing did he bring me to the land of Israel. And not for nothing that he fashioned within me a stalwart spirit and an inner purity. Rav Kook is saying God granted me all these gifts. He created me in a certain way. It must be for a purpose. Rav Kook was humble. Even though I am surrounded by infinite weaknesses and impediments, a great many. He says, I'm a fa I fail. I don't use my talents correctly. But I know that God put me in this situation for a purpose. What is that purpose? Skip down to the bolded part. All of these have been planted within me so that I will, I will use them to illuminate the world, to fashion a literature filled with the light of the secrets of the Torah, popular and accessible to all. What is Rav Kook trying to do? Take Kabbalah, take Jewish mysticism, translate it in a popular way, 
write it out in an, in an elegant, elaborate, not elaborate, an elegant, um, flowing type of fashion that would be ex without all the technical Kabbalistic language, such that it will be accessible to the average Hebrew reader, and they thereby illuminate their world, their new world in the 20th century, particularly in the land of Israel, with the secrets of Kabbalah. So when somebody is a farmer in the land of Israel, in some valley in the middle, in Amic in, in, in Israel, they will be able to fully understand the significance of what they're doing based on the secrets of Kabbalah. When school children in the land of Israel are studying, you know, Bracious Baralokim, and God created the beginning of the world, they will also be taught some of the basic systems of Kabbalah, such that they'll be able to think about God in a different way than the earlier generations. Um, and this is exactly what Rav Kook tried to do, and this is exactly why his thought is innovative, exactly why he was excommunicated, not he personally, but his writings were put in clear and were banned in certain communities because he was revealing some secrets of the Torah that, should, that they felt should not have been revealed, and he was, the conclusions he reached were radical conclusions. So that is a general introduction to Rav Kook as a person and the thought of Rav Kook in more, more, more generally. Um, it, it doesn't do it justice, but that's what we're going to do for, for now. Um, any comments or questions on this part before we get into the chuva part? So far, so good. Great. So, so let's go down in the source sheet for a second. So our, our series has been revolving around the axis of traditional chuva versus 20th century chuva. And since that we saw traditional chuva, we saw the text of Rabbi Yona, we saw the text of the Rambam, was filled with these heavy emotions, with sorrow, with moroseness, with um, guilt, with anxiety, and all of these things are played up as positive aspects of the tshuva process. We saw Rav Salvechik embrace that to a degree, but also talk about how you could transform those things to not being paralyzed, but being empowered to create a new self. And we're going to see Rav Cook in a, a little bit more radical fashion, also embrace the tsar, embrace the pain and the distress and the, and the sorrow of tshuva, really give the entire process a very, very different flavor. So first, just to get on the ground, the Rav Kook did believe in a sorrowful, painful type of tshuva. You can't get fully around that until we get to Chabad, as we'll say. Um, but you can't get fully around that in, in, in traditional sources. Rav Kook writes as follows. So, Rota Tshuva. Rota Tshuva is his, Rav Kook's writings about tshuva. He himself wrote it, and he said that he studied it every year afterwards, after he wrote it, during the month of Elul, and every year he found new chidushim, new innovations, new meanings in the words that he himself wrote, because again, he was a capitalist, so he, was writing, he felt like he was writing under some sense of inspiration. Um, Rav writes as follows, the inner pain of repentance is a great theme for the poets of sorrow to strike upon their harps, and for the artists of tragedy to reveal thereby their talents. There is an, am an amazing amount of pain, of distress, of sorrow that exists in the tshuva process. And if Cook says, we need artists, we need writers, we need songwriters, we need playwrights to be able to fully, fully capture in art the pain and the sorrow of tshuva. Good. So the pain and the sorrow of tshuva are there. Amazing. But that being said, there are only like three or four passages about this in the entirety of the book. The book is around 50, 60 pages long. I, I, I actually recently moved and I don't have it unpacked yet, so I apologize for not, for not being able to show it to you. It's around 50, 60 pages long, um, but again, each page is made up of like maybe 10 different smaller paragraphs, and that's the way Rav Cook often expresses thought. 
So there are only three or four passages about the pain of tshuva. There's a lot more passages. There are the, um, there's a lot more focus on the other emotions that are supposed to accompany tshuva. Look at verse number four. We're going to look at, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at some of these passages about other emotions that are new to us so far that are supposed to accompany tshuva. And then we're going to take a step back and see what comes to general theory about tshuva. What is the definition of tshuva? And we'll see why these emotions make sense. The book writes as follows, verse number four. It is impossible to estimate or evaluate the intensity, intensity of happiness, usher, which a person must sense within himself with great contentment. Out of the midst of that refined pain he experiences when the spirit of sanctity and purity descends upon him. So a person has to be intensely happy Person, again, Rav Cook is writing experientially, he's writing phenomenologically. He's writing, uh, when this happens to you, you just feel happy. When you, when you, with, if there's the midst of refined pain. Refined pain is the pain of tshuva. When you're sorrowful about the past, you regret what you did, you feel like a failure. But in the midst of that refined pain, there has to be an intense amount of happiness, a spirit of contentment, and a spirit of sanctity that descends upon you. When? At that time, that he's absorbed with the consuming thought of complete remorse for all of his sins, iniquities, and transgressions. At the very moments when you're feeling sad and regretful over your past, you have to feel happy. Why do you feel happy? Here comes the end of the piece. But the will, the desire to be virtuous, this is the spirit of godly paradise, which sweeps within the soul filling it with infinite happiness to such an extent that even the fire of Gehenna, of deepest pain, is also transformed into a stream of pleasure, stream of pleasure being a capitalistic term used in the Zohar in a, in a variety of contexts. What's your quick saying over here? Yes, you're, you made mistakes. When you think about the mistakes you made, and as our Salvation taught us last week, when you, when you do vizoi, when you verbally state the mistakes you made and you see them in front of your eyes, so to speak, it's painful, it's hard. You feel like a failure. But what underlies that emotion? What underlies your whole motivation to do tshuva? It's a will to be virtuous. It's a rutzon to be a tzadik. You deep down have a desire to be good. Otherwise, you wouldn't be going through this process. You wouldn't face your own sins and face your feelings of failure unless, underlying all those things, you wanted to be close to God. You wanted to be righteous. You wanted to feel that you're doing something meaningful in, with your life in the presence of God. And when you focus on that, on the underlying emotion, what sweeps you over? A feeling of infinite happiness to such an extent that it overwhelms the feelings of regret and sadness and moroseness that, that permeated tshuva, according to Rabbi Yona, according to Shari Tshuva, according to one of the sources we saw in, in earlier weeks. So you see what Rav Cook is doing. He's not radically breaking. He's not saying that they're wrong. Rabbi Yona is incorrect. There's no sadness in tshuva. Tshuva doesn't have to be, doesn't have to, doesn't have to include sadness and pain and distress and anxiety. It's all there. But you, as somebody performing tshuva, you as somebody who wants to fix themselves during Elo and Yom when you have to focus on 
the why am I going through this process? And when you realize the reason why, you have a desire to be good. The desire to be close to God is such an awesome, powerful, overwhelming desire that it, it, um, it, at the end of the day, it is going to, it's going to, it's going to, um, to, uh, to change the entire tenor of the Chuva experience to a more positive and joy-filled one. These are the types of pieces that permeate, that really, really permeate um, Rav, Cook's, Rav Cook's writings on Chuva. Um, another source, source number five. Similar, similar, but I mean, only each of these sources gives you a different, a different flavor, a different, different angle. So I wanted to bring three or four of them. And then we'll get to the general theory of Chuva. Sometimes, Rav Cook writes, one needs to distance himself from thoughts of holiness of Chuva if they bring one towards sadness. Because the principle of joy that is connected with holiness is greater than any form of tshuva. What is Cook saying over here? Rabino Yona is right. What we saw in week one and partially in week two is 100% right. When you do tshuva, you will become sad. It's inevitable. You failed. I failed. We all failed. When you face that and you think about it and you say to yourself, there are feelings of failure and it's hard. Cook writes, don't, it's true, you have to do it, but don't get yourself too deeply submerged in that process. Why? Because when you feel the feelings of sadness overtaking you, you have to stop. Distract yourself from the thoughts of tshuva. It's not, he's, and he's saying these are thoughts of holiness of Kedusha. The Hebrew is from the thoughts of holiness and thoughts of tshuva. These are holy thoughts. But you still have to stop yourself in your tracks, distract yourself, start thinking about the weather, start thinking about sports, start thinking about something else. Why? Because there's a danger involved. If you become too submerged in these, so to speak, negative emotions, you will become disassociated, detached from the emotion of simcha, and the emotion of Simcha is so important for this time period, for Elul and for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur, for the High Holidays, that you have to stop even Tshuva to remain within a joyous framework. Next paragraph. Therefore, when thoughts of fear come to a person and thoughts of Tshuva through sadness, one should remove his mind from them until his thoughts are set, until you're more calm. He will accept upon himself Holiness and fear of God in a joyful manner that is fitting for the straight of heart who serve Hashem in truth. Don't let yourself get depressed, or don't even, don't even let yourself get too sad, even if it's a part of a tshuva process. Distract yourself from tshuva, as horrible as that sounds. You know, go start watching Netflix, go on your, go on your, go on your smartphone, do something, go on Facebook. Distract yourself from these thoughts in order to then return to the process of regret and conviction for the future, even for the future, in a more joyful manner. Again, I don't know if any other earlier Jewish source that's told you, that tells you straight up, stop tshuva in its tracks while you're involved in what he calls in order to avoid sadness. So that's source number, source number five. So the source number four, the, the first source we saw, was that underlying all the sadness has to be some, 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 some joyous emotions. Source number five, the second source about the emotions, our cook tells us, when you begin, start beginning too sad, stop the whole process, distract yourself, go on Facebook, and then come back to it later when you're able to do it in a more joyful manner. 
Next course. This is less about simcha, about joy, and more about the way you should feel about your mistakes, or the way I should feel about my mistakes. The book writes as follows. A person who is constantly pained by his sins, and by the sins of the world. But, you know, I know such people. They are, they are living, they are always in pain because they made mistakes. There's horrible things happening in the world, and you're living with constant pain. You're living with that burden of sin, that burden of mistakes, that burden of horrible things happening in the world. Cook writes as follows. Again, Cook is very into activism, fixing, try to fix things. But here he's talking about the emotional state. This person needs to constantly forgive, to forgive himself, and to forgive the entire world. And through this, he brings in forgiveness and the light of kindness, the or shel chesed, to the entire world. Again, if Cook was a capitalist, everything you do affects the entire world, as, as we'll soon see. Everything that happens in the world affects you. Your thoughts can affect the entire cosmos. If you forgive yourself for your own sins, not in a way, not in a fake way, that like, I don't, I don't care about what he did, I don't take responsibility, but you seriously think about what you did and you realize you made a mistake and you commit to do different in the future, you don't live with that regret constantly. You forgive yourself and you move on. That can have cosmic, that can have cosmic effects, that can have cosmic ramifications. And people's sins throughout the world could be forgiven and they will, they, and they will therefore fix their ways. Again, if you recall back, to make sure, maybe I should, have, I should have done a comparison, Rabbeinu Yonah in the first week said that, you, that your sins should constantly be in front of your eyes. You should constantly be thinking about your sins um, to have experienced constant regret and constant tshuva. Cook says, no, experience the regret, then forgive yourself and move on. Like, this is like real 21st century you know, Jewish thought. Obviously, he wrote it in the 20th century, but this, this is a Torah that a lot, of, a lot of people need. First, he needs to forgive himself. And afterwards, he extends the forgiveness to everything. And the closer ones are first, to the branches of the roots of his soul, his family, his friends, his nation, his generation, his world, into all of the worlds. Start with yourself, and then you could expand. Then you could, then you could ex- expand to everybody else. I once saw. I, I was once. I was, once, I was once learning this piece with a friend, and he said that for many people today, it's, it works the opposite way. It's easier to forgive other people than to forgive ourselves. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the Rishonim, a lot of medieval Jewish philosophy, could be general philosophy as well, felt or assumed that people have this basic definition of self-love, and then about loving other people means extending this self-love to other people. I think today, I think Robert Jonathan Sachs has pointed this out, that people often lack that basic self-love. So you have to work on that, work on the self-love first before you can, before you can then extend it to other people. Um, so the hardest, today for many people, the hardest person to forgive is oneself. Um, the, farther the, person, the farther the person is from you, the easier it is to forgive them. Or if Cook is working with the opposite assumption, that people love themselves, and therefore the easiest person to forgive is, is oneself. Either way, you see, just you just see the tenor of tshuva. You do your tshuva, you regret, and then you stop. You forgive yourself, and then you move on. And that's such a positive thing; it can, it can have real cosmic ramifications. Um, source number seven: If you want to see it, and you want to read it yourselves, you create it inside. If you read it yourselves, it's basically the same thing. Because whenever you feel despondent, whenever you feel despair, realize the, the same thing as we said before. Why do I feel despondent? Why do I feel despair? It's because deep down I really care. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel despondent. I wouldn't feel despair over my spiritual state. I didn't care about my spiritual state. And therefore, if you, once you realize you care about your spiritual state, um, that itself should bring you great simcha and should bring you great, great joy and great joy and great chizuk and great, and, and great encouragement. So it's very clear that Cook is aware 
of the earlier passages in Shari Tshuva. He himself studied Shari Tshuva every year. Um, he thought it was, he, he recommended his students to, to learn it, but he's very consciously accepting it, but going one step beyond or one step deeper to tap into a different emotional place and give Tshuva a different flavor. Our question is going to be, why? Or what justifies this? What is Rakok's conception of tshuva such that he says tshuva has to be this, this joyful, happy, serene, serene towards the end, but content, spiritual, ecstatic process, as opposed to a morose, anxiety-filled, guilt, um, and guilt-filled process? Last week, we saw for salvation, out of the details of halacha, so they should develop a model that tshuva is very painful, but it's also very empowering. Rav Kok is not going to be looking at the details of halacha. He's going to be looking at Kabbalistic sources. He's going to be looking at Kabbalah. Um, and for Rav Kook's Kabbalistic system, is going to teach him that this is the way tshuva has to be experienced in the 20th century, and probably the 21st century as well. Um, before we get to Rav Kook's, so, so first I go to any comments or questions, please. Before we get to Rav Kook's theory, Rav Kook's theory of tshuva, um, there, are, there are two statements from Rav Kook that are often published as the introduction to Orota Tshuva, the introduction to his book on tshuva. The first one is from a letter he wrote to his student, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Karlat. Rav Kook writes as follows. If a person will come to innovate supernal matters regarding Teshuvah in contemporary times. If somebody wants to write a new book about Teshuvah in contemporary times, in the 1920s, and to the matter of the revealed end, and the light of salvation that is shining, he does not look, but he doesn't pay attention to the revealed end, to redemption, that for Kok is shining now that Jews are returning to the land of Israel. You don't look at the fact that history is moving forward and we're closer to redemption. If you want to write a book about Shuva, you will not be able to direct any matter to the truth of the Torah of truth. You will not be able to write a proper book about Shuva. If Cook is arguing that if Rabino Yona was living today and would write Shari Shuva in the 20th century, it would not be a popular book. People would not accept it. It wouldn't resonate. Why? Because in the 20th century, if you want to write Jewish philosophy, this is Rav Kook's theory, if you want to do Jewish philosophy properly in a way that is meaningful to people, you have to talk about redemption. You have to talk about the fact that we are closer to redemption now. And because we're closer to redemption now, again, this is Rav Kook's general theory about Zionism. Zionism is not just a political state haven for the Jews. The state of Israel is not just a political state haven for the Jews. It's the fact that Jews returned to the land of Israel means that we're getting closer to Messianic times, we're fulfilling prophecies, and therefore more Torah has to be revealed, a different Torah has to be revealed, a more prophetic, capitalistic, spiritual Torah has to be revealed. If you're not tapping into that power, it's not going to work. People are not going to listen to you. Let's finish the letter. For every time shines with its own character. And what is the character of the 1920s for a cook and a corner of cook students? 1920s through 2020. Again, it's hard to push it. It's hard to know how much how far to push the envelope. But just three weeks ago, 
I was listening to a share by a religious Zionist rabbi, a very prominent religious Zionist rabbi, who argued that Rav Kook, whatever Rav Kook said in the 1920s, more or less is still true today in 2020, was Rav Kook had this vision of, uh, of what's going to be necessary to bring redemption. Is that true? Is that not true? I, I, I find it very hard to believe. Um, but this is Rav Kook writing in his own time period in the 1920s, and we're going to, if we wanted to make this more contemporary, we'd have to figure out um, which parts of Rav Kook are still relevant today, which parts are not. For Rav Kook, in order to write about tshuva, or really about any topic, but particularly about tshuva, you have to tap into the fact that redemption is coming, and to therefore tap into the fact that a different tenor of tshuva, different sources for tshuva have to be there, I'm going to see more Kabbalistic, more Torah, more prophetic Torah, Kabbalistic Torah, spiritual Torah, has to be revealed. I, I have a comment. Yeah, please. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a fan of um, Amos Backenheim, so you can probably anticipate where this is going to go. Um, <laughs> you know, Rav Cook died in 1933, and at the time he was writing this stuff, he could not foresee what was about to happen. Um, after reading Fackenheim, I have never been able to read Rav Cook um, because his thinking seems like an artifact of a world that cannot continue to exist. I don't think you can talk about something that was valid in 1920 and continues to be valid in 2020 because you're skipping over something, that thing that happened in between. And I guess I accept Fackenheim's fundamental argument that you can't possibly skip over that. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's uh, disrespectful to, to say, but I, I feel as if Rob Cook sort of draws a smiley face on things that you just can't, you can't draw that smiley face anymore. The, the, his, his words about joy and about forgiveness were beautiful at the time, but I don't think, in my opinion, you, you can't say those things anymore. I don't, know what you, I don't know what you can say, but I just can't, I, I just don't see it as having any continuing life. And I, I wonder what you think about that. Um, thank you so much for the comments. I really appreciate it. Um, my, my intentions when I quoted that religious Zionist rabbi of saying that Cook's words are still 100% pertinent today was not to convey consent. I do not think that's true. I think that as, I do think that Rav Cook tapped into certain truths of his, this is my own personal take. Rav Cook tapped into certain truths of his own time period and truths about the subsequent decades, about what was going to happen to the Jewish people, and what was going to happen 
Um, so, um, he, he accurately predicted certain things that some social changes are going to take place and the religious responses to those social changes. Educationally, he was prescient in terms of the educational model he, 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 he tried to set up. Um, but I think you are 100% right that the, what, we're, what we're about to discuss, which is the constant linear ascent of all the worlds, which is a major theme in our thought, I think it is very difficult to accept in a post-Holocaust world. And I think Rav Cook's more, I would say, rational or down-to-earth students are aware of that. And they, they, teach, they, 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 they calibrate their teaching of Rav Cook's thought to take that into account. I have been in certain institutions, certain religious Zionist institutions, where, where, I studied, where I studied for a period of time, where those things are not taken into account. And, uh, Rav Cook's son and heir, uh, who lived post-Holocaust and, and was a leader in the post-Holocaust world, did try to incorporate the Holocaust into his father's thought. And to my mind, it's, it's um, as you said, it's an affront to what happened in the Holocaust to try to fit it into the framework which his father, which his, which his father had. So, um, we're, I'm, my goal here is just to teach, just to teach the thought of Rav It's less to evaluate its contemporary resonance. Um, I think each person on their own could, could accept or not accept. I can tell you that a contemporary Israel, I'm not a sociologist, I've lived in Israel now for three years. I'm, I live in Israel, I mean, only three years ago. Um, these words of Rav Kalk, and even the more extreme versions that we're going to see next week from the Babu Rebbe and maybe a little bit from Rabbi Nachman Breslov, are extremely popular, extremely, extremely popular. Um, so I think the joy, the smiley faces, this approach to tshuva is on steroids today in certain, in large segments of the religious Zionist population here, here in Israel. Maybe it's because of distance to the Holocaust. Maybe it's because... I see it as a reaction to the Holocaust. Maybe it's a reaction to the Holocaust. Maybe it's already third generation. Maybe people in Israel have experienced so many ups and downs. This is their way of, this is the way of dealing with it, to develop religious philosophy. It's very focused on simcha and optimism, um, but that is a major, it's a major force. I see it in my kids' school systems, and I see it in, when I speak to friends, I see it in the writings, I see it when I go to lectures. It's there. This, uh, this positive optimist, optimism, emotional optimism, positive expectations for the future, that part of Rav I would say, is still very strongly felt here, here in Israel. But I'm not a sociologist, I, don't, I never did a formal study, so that's, this is my own anecdotal experience. Of being here for three years, but thank, but thank you for the comments. Sure. Um, good. So that being said, I think that foreshadows that segues us very nicely to our understanding of Rav Cook's. What is Rav Cook's approach to tshuva? What is the nature of tshuva in the twentieth century, such that Rav Cook writes that you have to understand the revealed end in order to understand why tshuva became such a positive experience. So Rav Cook writes as follows. This is the published introduction to the Rosh Book writes as follows. It is several years now, in source number nine, it is several years now that I fight an internal battle, and a strong spirit pushes me to speak about tshuva, and all of my thoughts are centered on it. Of course, is writing that he is obsessed with the concept of tshuva. This is coming from somebody who very largely probably did not sin. Tshuva takes the largest portion of Torah and of life. Upon it, upon tshuva, all individual and communal hopes are built. This is, this is a surprising statement. 
Normally, we think of tshuva as a reaction to sin. Tshuva, when tshuva only comes into the world because I sinned, and therefore God grants me the ability to repent, to return to him, to, 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 to set my ledger straight, and to experience the presence of God once again. What does it mean that upon tshuva, all individual and communal hopes are built? A cook then writes as follows. It is a mitzvah that on the one hand is the easiest, as one thought of tshuva is already considered tshuva. Here are tshuva, thinking the thought of repentance, the Gemara says is considered tshuva. But on the other hand, it's the most difficult, as it has never yet been fully actualized in life and in the world. Tshuva hasn't yet been fully revealed. So what is Rav Cook's definition of tshuva? It's not a reaction to sin, like we've seen up until now, like the standard approach to tshuva, it is something else. And unfortunately, we don't have the time, or I don't really, I don't even have the major capabilities to go through the capitalistic sources behind this, where Cook wanted to take a certain line of thinking from the Zohar, from the Arizal, from the capitalistic mystical Jewish text, and argue as follows. Again, this is what I've, I've, I'm not sure that I've heard um, what, what, the, what the previous commenter mentioned is something that is a little bit hard to accept for us today. Rav Cook writes as follows. Rav Cook believed, based on Kabbalistic sources, that God created the world at a certain point. Let's call that point, point X. Um, and point Y is a higher point, a point closer to, closer to perfection, a point where God's presence is felt, where life is meaningful, where everything is perfect, from a spiritual and material perspective. God set the world on a one-way trajectory, starting at point X, going slowly but surely, inexorably, throughout history, to ultimately hit point Y, ultimately hit that high point, to ultimately hit the utopian and perfect world um, when in, in the Messianic era. And Rav Koch writes that now in the 20th century, we could finally tap into this. Because in the 20th century, there's so much talk about progress. And now we know we can look back and we can see the major progress we've had from ancient times. Ancient times, people were barbarians, so to speak. In ancient times, nobody argued about universal health care. It wasn't a concept. People were slaves. Nobody took care of other people. All of a sudden, at some point in history, people decided, hey, we as a society have a responsibility to take care of each other. So let's, maybe we should have a universal health care system. Think about education. Who, who, who felt that every kid had the right to education? Slowly but surely, over the course of history, these ideas developed, and nowadays, you know, in the Geneva Convention, it's one of the international, it's considered one of the international human rights. Every child has a right to an education. For a cook, these distinctions, these slow progressions over time, and the positive developments, aren't just random things. This is God's, this is the, you know, the practical manifestation of God's causing the world to ascend, of the ascent of the world over time. The world ascends in all manners. Previously, the economic system was based on slavery. Now, then it was based on serfdom. And then it's based on some type of capitalism, but it's capitalism the social, the social, the social welfare net. So we're constantly getting better over, over time. Um, again, does this theory hold water in the second half of the 20th century? I have no idea. Rav Cook's students have written a lot about this, but we're gonna just take the theory and run with it for a second. The most famous articulation that Rav Cook has of this, of this idea is about the theory of evolution. Rav Cook writes, and no, Rav Cook, I think Darwin published his book, The Origin of Species, 1868. Rav Cook wrote this passage, I think in the 1890s, um, maybe a little bit later. 
where if Cook writes, look, look, look at source number 10, the doctrine of evolution, if you read the book of the English in the Mavim, is currently conquering the world, dot, dot, dot. Well, we'll get to what he says about it in a second, the, the theory of evolution, about biological evolution, about social, and then social Darwinism, which is a whole other story, where Cook says these ideas are conquering the world. They, people are being taken by them, and they fly in the face of traditional religion. Because traditional religion is all about how back in the good old days, God was revealed. In the good old days, God gave the Torah to Moses and Sinai. Back in the good old days, God's presence was revealed. And now we're slowly you know, descending. We're getting worse with time. The theory of evolution was the opposite. Things are getting better with time. Things are adapting. Things are, things are progressing. If Cook writes, yeah, the theory of evolution is a problem if you take the traditional approach to religion. Eliana, I'll take the comment in a second. Thank you so much. If Cook writes, the doctrine of evolution is currently conquering the world, jives with the eternal secrets of, of Kabbalah to a larger degree than any other philosophical doctrine. The fact that the biological organisms are becoming more adaptive with time is exactly the physical manifestation of the spiritual principle. Things are get better with time. People are more spiritual as time, as time goes on. People are more ethical as time goes on. People care about ethics more as, as time goes on. You know, if Cook was writing during a time period when the, what, what's called the isms were sweeping the world. People are being swept up with communism, with liberalism. They're trying to redeem the world and, and create revolutions. It was born in 1865, right after, 18, right after 1848, and with, with, with the rise of communism. They obviously didn't think communism was supposed to, was to be the approach that, that would save the world, but they reflected something about where people were at. People wanted a utopian society. They wanted a fair society. What is your book right? Evolution that goes in an ascending route gives the optimistic foundation to the world. But how is it possible to despair when we see everything develops and ascends? When we pierce to the inside of the doctrine of ascending development, we find the divine matter shining in complete clearness. And there, Cook writes that what happens in biology happens spiritually, ethically, morally, technologically, in every other sense as well. So if Cook really believed in a line of progress, linear progress, whether it's, which you can only, you can, you can tell in large chunks of time, in one generation, it may, not be, it may not be accessible, it may not be able to see it, but it's happening behind the scenes, and over the long arc of history, you can really see it. Yeah, sorry, Eliana, Eliana had a comment. Hello, Ronstein. Um, hey. <laughs> um, so in one of my classes, we were talking a little bit about this, like, idea that people started to believe that, um, like, life is supposed to consistently be getting better. And we basically talked about how it was like kind of started during the enlightenment and it's like more of a modern idea that like people used yes. to think, yes, like people used to think like life is cyclical and like it's not necessarily a guarantee or like even something you would think about that your kids' lives are gonna be better than yours. And that's like a really modern concept. So I was just wondering like if there are any halachic sources, just cause I feel like like what you said before about Yerida Hadoro where like, I feel like Judaism usually takes the opposite approach that like as you get farther from Har Sinai, it's almost like people get less connected and people get like less, not moral, but like have less of a, a sense of religious like identity. So I was just wondering if there are any like halachic sources that Rav Cook had. That is a good question. Um, there are two points to it. And the second point is halachic sources. Rav Cook writes the halachic sources tell you talk about your readers and readers the descent of the generations. But he felt that the capitalistic sources discuss an aliyah the descent of the generations. He has several letters for several very troubled students wrote to him. Like, what in the world are you writing about? What you're writing about is actually against 
not only what we see with our own eyes, but also against explicit statements of the rabbis in the Talmud, and Rav Cook had to defend himself. So we have letters where that happens. I could uh, want to get forward into you afterwards if you want. Um, in terms of, in terms, yeah, in terms of, in terms of the, I said that this idea of progress and things getting better, I think Rabbi Sachs is not the first one to point it out, but he points it out very beautifully in one of his lectures, um, that, the, that the prophets, the Nevi'im, the Nach, is actually the, the first book we have in world history that predicts a better future for mankind. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be your kids, it may not be two generations from now, but time is linear. Um, the Chinese believe in cyclical time, um, and halakha does work cyclically, as Rabbi Sachs points out in this lecture, but the prophets discussed a linear sense of time, and the, the Messianic idea was a very powerful idea which, which fueled progress in Western civilization. So I think it's, Judaism has both aspects to it, but if you look at the prophets, if you look at the Nevi'im, they do discuss a linear sense of time with progress at least appearing at the end. Um, thank you. I want to be able just, just, just to finish on this idea. I really, really appreciate the conversations. So if could believe in this progress, idea of progress of the, the human society, the cosmos, spirituality, whatever it was as a whole. For Kuk, this is the definition of tshuva. We talked about tshuva. Tshuva means this ascent of the world. The Gemara says tshuva kadmeliola. Tshuva preceded the world. God created tshuva before the world. Most people interpret that to mean that God knew human beings would make mistakes, so the world had to be built with tshuva already, already built in. Rav Kook says, no, what does it mean tshuva kadmeli odam, that tshuva preceded the world? That God created the world on a one-way trajectory towards perfection. And that's it. Everything in the world is constantly getting better, constantly trying to connect more and more with God. Um, if you, we don't have time to see it inside, look, look inside source number 11, he says, he says it explicitly, the general tshuva is the ascent of the entire world. Good. That's general tshuva. So what about me? What about my particular tshuva? So if Cook writes as follows, this affects the way you understand your, your particular tshuva. When I'm born, my natural state is to ascend towards God together with the rest of the cosmos, together with the, re together with the rest of the world, always striving to be better. And together, harmoniously, the entirety of the cosmos, me included, is on this one-way trajectory towards God. What happens when I sin? What happens when I slander my friend, when I trip an old lady in the street and steal a kid's candy? What happens? The entirety of the cosmos is continuing in its path towards God. What do I do? I take myself out of that process. I take myself out of that cosmic movement, out of that cosmic dance. All of a sudden, I've severed my connection, not just to God, but to my natural state of being, to my connection with everything around me. I'm so sorry. I think the internet, I had an internet blackout for around 10 seconds. I, I apologize for that. Um, amazing. Thank you so much. I apologize. Well, so, so where were we? Um, thank you all. Thank you all for, for staying on. Um, so, so this general ascent of the world is, is the basic definition of tshuva. When I, I'm part of it. When I sin, I'm taking myself out of it. And when I do tshuva, can you hear me? Is the internet still down? You hear me? Um, when I do tshuva, thank you. When I do tshuva, what am I doing? I'm simply reinstating myself in my natural state of ascent together with the rest of creation. So if I had to ask you, what is the painful part of that process? And what is the uplifting, happy, joy-filled part of that process? It's the sin which causes the pain. 
but that's the unnatural state. The, me and the rest of creation are naturally created to constantly ascend and get better and become more ethical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I sin, I'm taking myself out of that process, which is unnatural for me. I'm severing myself from the rest of creation. And when I do tshuva, all I'm doing is returning to my natural state, my natural state of connection to the rest of creation, my natural state of aspiring of, for connection to God. And that's why it's a joyful process. Just look at, look at verse number 12 for a second. These are, this is Rav Kook's description of sin versus tshuva. Rav Kook writes as follows. I didn't put the English here. I apologize. Every sin causes pain to the heart. It contradicts, it negates the, the unification, the unity. Between the individual personality and the rest of creation. Everybody was always doing the same thing. Boom. You sin, you're out of the process. What does tshuva do? Look at this left box on the left-hand side. Tshuva is a healing process. It's joyful, it's spiritual, it's filled with contentment. Next paragraph, similar. Every sin causes a trauma. It's unique trauma on Ephesh, on the soul. It's the sin which causes the pain, not the tshuva. The tshuva is the natural part. Which only leaves a person when they do tshuva. So tshuva has to be joyful. The book says that this notion of the scent of the world and the purity of each individual soul, the notion that each individual person is part of this part of this cosmic movement towards connection to God and constantly trying to ascend deep down, that's a secret which only the capitalists knew about. It's in the Zohar, it's in the Arizal, but nowadays everybody has to know about it. Each individual person has to realize they're part of something broader. Deep down they're a divine soul, Jew and non-Jew, he says, a divine soul, and you were constantly trying to reconnect to God. And therefore, if Cook writes, tshuva is the most natural process in the world. Tshuva is the most certain process in the world. Let's just look, look at one, one last, let's just look at, let's, let's, just, let's, let's, just look, let's just look at for a second, verse number 13. Therefore, there is nothing in the world as certain as tshuva. And in the end, all will return to a state of tikkun, a state of rectification, and certainly that all Jews will do tshuva. What's Rav Kook saying? It's there. It's part of us. It's natural. And therefore, tshuva is going to be a joyful process. And for Rav Kook, okay, we don't have time to go through this. If you look at the last source, Rav Kook says, in order, this is where the, the land, return to land of Israel comes in. Tshuva to cosmos is society as a whole returning to God, becoming more ethical. All of a sudden, we care about universal health care, something which wasn't part of the conversation you know, 60 years ago. For Cook, that would be progress. Good or bad, is it this policy, that policy? The fact for thinking in these terms is a positive movement. Individualist Shuva is I send, and now I have to put myself part of back to be part of the cosmic process. There's also a national Shuva. What's a national Shuva? The Jewish people are returning to their homeland, aspiring once again to reconnect to God. And for Cook, more important, almost a, 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 essentially, aspiring to that spiritual connection to God and creating a spiritual, moral, ethical, Torah-centric, Torah-filled, God-filled society, which is what, for Rav Kook, which is what the prophets always predicted the Jewish people would be able to create. Is Israel that today? No, hopefully aspirationally, but that is part of the tshuva process for Rav Kook, the tshuva of the Israeli society, um, and of which he saw as embodying Am Yisrael, the Jewish people as a whole, on their path towards reconnecting to God. 
so thank you so much. I apologize for, for, getting, for getting disconnected. Um, and God willing, I hope that, 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 that these ideas um, certainly resonate with me still to a degree. I hope they resonate with some other people here. And God willing, next week, we'll be able to look at the Lubavitcher Rebbe for a purely Hasidic approach to tshuva. Um, and we'll see how radically different it, that is than the initial approach to tshuva that we saw two weeks ago. Thank you. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, everybody. And hope everybody has a great week. All right. Thank you so much. I am going to include a link to some of our upcoming classes in the chat. Uh, you can get information at drisha.org slash classes. As Rabbi Bronstein said, we will be back here next week at the same time for the fourth and final class of this series, but we would encourage you to check out some of the other things that we have going on during Elul as well. They are great. I'm sorry for interrupting. They're amazing. I've been listening to some of them. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, and God willing, we will have information uh, published in the next few weeks about our uh, sessions for after the Chagim as well. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you again, Rabbi Bronstein, so much for a really, really wonderful shear. Uh, have a great rest of the day, everyone. Looking forward to seeing you again soon.